As we work towards the tail end of this series, identity crisis is what is the identity of the church, understanding who you are individually, but also what is the responsibility and the ability of the church itself. And so as we jump into this, we jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See, that's the individual that is now transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. They give their life to Christ. We use all these terms that they're born again, they're saved, they're washed in the blood. We use all of this terminology. What we need to understand is not necessarily what term you use, is what is the net result of that. Because claiming to be a Christian does not make you transformed or new. Anybody can say that. You can go anywhere, be anywhere, say anything. doesn't matter. What matters is what actually happens and transforms in your life. We should expect to see a change in the individual person at the moment that they give their life to Christ. Not that they're perfect, but suddenly the desires begin to drift away from the things of this world and more into the things of the Lord. And initially there's an excitement and an energy that goes with that, and then it kind of slowly begins to drift away. What we have to understand is that what we were is not who we are. Who we are is dictated by God. And we got to get that because we don't get it. Like, what you see in the mirror is not relevant because who God said you are is. What God said you can do, you can do. And what God says goes. Is that fair? I mean, we're talking about CMA as an example. This is a ministry built around the idea that they got a bunch of bikers and how are we going to do something? And they built this entire structure on pressing towards the gospel because their uh, administrative expenses are very lean. I mean, all things considered for a ministry that reaches worldwide like that. And you know why that is? Because you got a bunch of country bumpkins running the thing, which is awesome because they just know how to get stuff done. They're the guys that are out there on the farm and will find three pieces of metal welded together and go plow something. That's what they do, which is fantastic. But they just took what they did and put it towards the gospel. What if we did that in our own lives? What if you're just this, an exceptional baker and you just baked things and just went and talked to people? Like, hey, here's a pie. Let me tell you something. You give someone a pie, they're going to give you 10 minutes of their time. I'm serious. Like one of the things they do is they go out and they give out water, right? You set up when the bike rallies are all going on and stuff. You set up at various places. Like I ran into two or three. I was traveling somewhere. I don't remember where it was. Two or three different groups like on the same day as I was making my way somewhere. I don't remember where I was going. And every time, every time I stepped out of the vehicle, they're like, hey, you want a bottle of water? Like actually what I want is a bottle of Diet Coke. What else you got there? But, but, I mean, that's the thing. All they're doing is engaging in conversation. It's not that complicated. They're taking the mission. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we can't please God if we're in the flesh. We can only do that spiritually. And the problem we have is the church turns to carnal methods in order to get the mission that was meant to be done spiritually. We try to do things in the flesh, so to speak. We have a carnal mindset. We reaction, our reaction to events are carnal. They're not spiritual. The way we respond is carnal. It's not spiritual. And we wonder why we're such a mess. Because when you define the church, depending on whom you ask and what their experience is with, was with it, they'll tell you the definition thereof. Everybody's been hurt by a church. Did you know that? Everybody's had a bad meal at a restaurant. Did you know that? 
Everybody went to a doctor they didn't like. Did you know that? Everybody saw a movie that was terrible. Did you know that? Yet the church is the only one that seems to keep people away. Isn't that interesting? We haven't stopped eating. We didn't stop going to movies. And we still go to the doctor. Some of us. You know, I mean, that's the thing. When you look at this, it's like, why is that the case? It's not because of anything outside of there is a spiritual blindness. And we don't want the truth. And the church today doesn't want the truth. Because the church today in America, we're very comfortable. In many parts of the world, we're very comfortable. We show up, we do our thing, we go through our time. Some of us will put on this, this air of spiritualness, and we sound good, and we pray more, and we do these things, but we're not accomplishing anything. Did you realize, I don't know if you know this, that the mission of the believer is not to pray more. You should. The mission of the believer is to do what? Make disciples. Prayer, massively important. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, is that we do things that make us feel good. And we adopt carnal methodologies that make us feel like we're accomplishing something, but are we making spiritual ground? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll stop down to verse 3. It says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You know what that means? It means we're in a battle. And that battle... As you'll see in Ephesians 6, between your ears is where it starts. And adopting carnal methods to deal with the spiritual problem will not solve your problems. Because nothing will change. You'll feel better for a moment. I mean, I, I grew up in the charismatic world. I've seen all sorts of different things going on. I remember in the 80s when we had this thing called warring tongues. We're going to talk about tongues a little bit today. Do you remember that? You're laughing. Do you remember that? And, and there would be guys that would show up in fatigues. And they would get up there and they just yell in, as loud as they can. Did that make it more powerful? No, it just made it louder. You know, like I've seen all sorts of different stuff through the years going on, and it's like it makes us feel like we're doing something more, but we're not necessarily. Again, was there anything wrong with what they were doing? No, you want to pray in tongues and fatigues? You go nuts. You want to do it in your pajamas? Go nuts. I don't care. Don't come here in your jammies, but whatever. But, I mean, the thing is, is like we keep doing these things because we're just trying to wrap our head around. We just got to. We've got to feel like we're doing more instead of just doing more. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the face, knowing the same sufferings experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The enemy's out. He's looking. He's looking to people he can devour. Does that mean that he's only looking for the believer? No. No, there are a lot of people that are devoured right now. They don't know it. They're under oppression and depression and every other eschen that you can think of. They're under strongholds of the enemy. They may even be under possession, if for that matter. Don't think the exorcist and all that weird stuff. There may be things that are going on in this world, and we turn to carnal methods. Instead of just the good old-fashioned, let's just deal with this. Why can we deal with this? Because of Matthew 28, verse 18. Since Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what did he just say? All my authority has come from above, and I am now giving this to you, and I want you to go into this world as my imager, as my representative. That means that you go into the uttermost parts of the earth, and then you also go into the We'll call it the innermost parts of the earth. In other words, like, I can throw a rock and hit it type of spot. 
where you go around and you talk to people in your life, in your world, people you work with, your neighbors, whatever. They get to know you. You should be the crazy Christian. <laughs> crazy in the sense that this is what my world revolves around. See, when they hear you and they see you, they should think that person has something I don't. But many times they don't see that and they don't hear that because you live like they do. You sound like, you respond like they do. You worry like they do. You get angry like they do. We do all of these things like they do. But the last time I checked, we're not supposed to respond like they do because we have the greater one who is inside of us because we are a new creation, not the same as we were. And so therefore, we should look and sound and live differently. But we don't. It's because we don't believe it. I mean, we kind of believe it, but we don't believe it. And as I showed you guys, we've been talking about this. I read from you John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, that the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. And I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus came to set us free from the chains, if you will. And we sang about that today. Of whatever the enemy holds. And one of the things is, is that the thief came and stole Messiah from the nation of Israel. How did he do it? Well, first of all, they came through the teaching. Because they were being taught that what happens when Messiah comes? He's going to be the reigning king. And what do you think the Pharisees were saying? He's going to be one of us. And here comes this meek man, born from nothing, had nothing, but was on mission. And when he would go about and he would preach, everybody's listening like, man, this, they're astounded because he preaches one having authority. He wasn't like the other guys. There was something different. Well, that caught the attention of the Pharisees. And then this crazy thing was happening. He would pray for sick people, and they weren't sick no more. Well, that got the Pharisees' attention. And then this other thing where there were these people that were demonized, and when he told the demon to go, you know what they did? They left. And then he went out, and he saw dead people, and he said, you ain't going to be dead no more. Lazarus, come forth. You guys know the movies. I always wonder if that's what it sounded like. And that got the attention of the Pharisees. And he did another crazy thing is he initially took the 12, and he says, listen, I want you to go. And I want you to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I want you to heal the sick. And I want you to cast out demons. And they went. And to their surprise... All of those things happened, and they came back. And then he said, hey, you 70, I want you to go do the same thing as before. And they did. And then they came back, and to their surprise, all of those things happened. And Jesus said, that's great, but be more excited that your name is written in heaven. All of this stuff got the Pharisees' attention. So you would think, oh my goodness. How could you deny that he's the Messiah? Well, how do you deny it? Well, you try to have Lazarus killed again. After you killed Jesus, you try to bribe the guards, just tell them that you fell asleep, and the disciples came and stole the body. And I don't know who that crazy guy over there with the beard, because some of it's gone, and he's got holes in his ears. I don't know who that is, but that's not Jesus. That's a look-alike. It's a look-alike. That's what it is. You see, they were doing everything in their power to reject Messiah. The thief 
had come and stolen Messiah. Now he's coming back. He's coming back for him, but he'd stolen that. And see, here's the thing. They were lied to. And the thing is here, we've been lied to as well. Not just we in this room, okay? Don't misunderstand. I'm usually talking about Big C Church. See, the church is confused today because it doesn't know what it is. And if you don't know what you are, well, then apparently you can become a Supreme Court justice, but that's aside from the point. But on, thank you. I'll be here all week. Be sure to tip your waitress. No, here's the thing. Is if you don't know what you are and you don't know who you are, that you'll just kind of exist in coast. And he didn't tell the disciples, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back home, and I want to let your light shine. And I want you to share the gospel at all times. And if it's necessary, I want you to use words. He didn't say that. See, these men's lives were transformed. He said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to hang out there until you're endued with power from on high. You see, the church has been lied to, and we've allowed that lie, because ultimately we're responsible for ourselves. We've allowed that to take place and, and mold us into this, this image of this weak and pathetic Christianity that does not operate underneath the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we're so timid. We're more timid about preaching the gospel to the lost than we are about declaring it in our churches. And we're like, well, what's the difference? Because it shouldn't make any difference. You see, when Peter and John were arrested, and they said, listen, you can keep doing whatever you're doing. Just don't preach in that name. What did they do? They preached in that name. In fact, they were so ecstatic that they were counted worthy as to be persecuted just like Christ was. That's not us. That's not where we are. You see, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, is we ought to understand this idea of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. If it was so important that Jesus told his disciples that don't go but to wait and then go, I think it is something that we should understand. And when we go into anything, many of us grew up in some sort of a church system that taught something on this. But the thing is, is that for most people, they believe that it's real and true, but they don't necessarily know how to explain it or what it is and what it entails. And we can do this scripturally. So I came to you guys with the idea that there are three baptisms mentioned inside of the New Testament. The first one is the Holy Spirit that he baptizes us into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. That we're baptized into the body of Christ. The problem is because we already have a belief of what the word baptized mean, that we just kind of throw out our thinking process and we're saying like, well, you know, it doesn't appear that it means every time they get dunked in water. So it must have other meanings. And it simply means to immerse. So the Holy Spirit now baptizes us into Christ. From that point, whoever had preached that message will then baptize them into water as an image of Christ into the grave and rising again. We are making a declaration to the world that we are now followers of the way, followers of Messiah. It's the same thing that they did. They were baptized constantly. If they left Rabbi A and went to Rabbi B, Rabbi B would then baptize them and they were making a declaration to the world I am now a follower of Rabbi B. Different process than how we do it today. That doesn't matter for now. And the third part here, as was very clear in Scripture, is that it's Jesus who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. We see it in all four Gospels. The only thing outside of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that is mentioned in all four Gospels. The only thing must have some importance that every writer decided we need to throw this in here. 
John said constantly, I baptize with water, but one greater than I is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. So as we looked at this, just being pragmatic, it's like, okay, from a grammatical standpoint, these three things cannot be one in the same. These two, no problem. We hear it all the time. These are not the same thing. That once you're born again, then you should be baptized in water. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. It's important. But what's happened here is we've muddied the water on uh, one and three. Is that when you are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit, and that is all the Holy Spirit that you receive. You are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Is that true? Yes, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That is true. We looked at it from the New Testament, we looked at it in the Old Testament, the promise of the uh, new covenant coming. Ezekiel 36, that I will put my Spirit in you. Why would he do that? Well, where was the presence of God prior to that? In the Holy of Holies. Where's the Holy of Holies now? You're looking at it, baby. It's all its glitz and glamour. And if you're like me, you want that Holy Spirit to be comfortable and have plenty of room to move around. That was a joke. Thanks for keeping up. You see, the temple, as the light of the world, as the temple was known, is not made with hands, but now moves about the earth. Before, as the tabernacle had moved, before the temple, people came to where the Spirit of God was. What we, and if you study this out, okay, the Spirit of God had left the Holy of Holies for a very long time and returned when Jesus stepped on the earth. Okay? The temple is now everywhere. We don't go someplace to make a sacrifice. We are the sacrifice. Why is that? It's because of what Jesus did. As the priceless Lamb of God, as John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything changed in that moment. Everything changed. And so what we have to know is that what did Jesus command us to do? What do we see in Matthew 28? Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded. What is one thing that he commanded? Wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power. From on high, right? We forget that part, didn't we? Did he say, hey guys, do me a favor. If you don't mind, if you got time, you don't got to be at work tomorrow, nothing like that. There's no game on. Would you just hang out? That's not what he said. He said, wait. Fortunately, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to do this. So let's look at this. Acts chapter 1. Again, we're dispelling the lies. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now let's break this down. Number one, the promise of the Father is what? The giving of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, giving of the Holy Spirit, that's not the promise of the Father, as you will see later today. It's not the same thing. Was that promised by the Father? Technically, yes. But that's not what he's referencing. Then you have heard it from me that John baptized with water. You will baptize with the Holy, or be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This tells us something. When did they hear that from him? We don't know. Because in the Gospels, the only examples we have of that is what John said. We see that he had obviously had a private conversation with his disciples. Now, John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit 
not many days from now. And we know what that's leading into. So we know that the baptism with or in the Holy Spirit, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because that would be the baptism that the Holy Spirit does. I'm using grammar here. Are you guys impressed? If you know anything about me, that's a long shot, okay? But the baptism with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit cannot be the same thing. Why do we know that? Very simple. Let me teach you something. When we use Scripture, and if you're coming to, you're going to hear a lot about this today if you're over in Foundations class. When we use Scripture, we do not arbitrarily apply a meaning to a word. We're not politicians. We must allow Scripture to interpret itself. It's crucial to understand who said it, who was it said to, and how was that phrase used. So when he says that you will wait because the Holy Spirit will come upon you not many days from now, we need to know what he's referencing. So did they have the Holy Spirit? We're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If we say no, that means we've not done our homework. Because did he say to wait for the Holy Spirit? Yes, he did. Does that imply they don't have the Holy Spirit? Yes, it does. But we've got a problem. John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. When he, had, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and they saw the Lord. Now stop for a second. You notice what are they doing? They're hiding from the Jews. What changes here shortly? They're no longer hiding. 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let me ask you this. Was Jesus confused? So can we together say that when Jesus breathed on them and said to receive the Holy Spirit, that they received the Holy Spirit? Now, we are implying the idea that this is the born-again moment because we know through Scripture that is when we receive the Holy Spirit. So this cannot be the same thing as Acts chapter 1. It can't be because Jesus was not confused. He wasn't sitting there like, I'm not sure you've got it, so I'll just hang out. That's not what was happening. So what we're going to do is we're going to examine the Scriptures. Acts 17.11, it says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they took in the word that Paul was preaching with all readiness of heart and they searched the scriptures daily to see if what he said was true. That's our responsibility. You see, when we're lied to by maybe good-intentioned people, sometimes, not always, who is responsible for the belief system that you hold? It is not your mom and dad. It is not the church you grew up in. It is not your pastor. It's not your pastor today. It is you. Because if I say something or anybody else says anything, what is your responsibility? To search the scriptures daily to see if what was said is true. That is your responsibility. You don't take my word for it. You don't take anybody else's word for it. You do your own homework. What do we search? Not our opinion. You notice it didn't say that? I just don't like that. He said it so harshly. No, it says search the scriptures because in lies truth. So there are five places that we see what we call the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 8, 9, and 10, and chapter 19. Five examples that we see in the book of Acts. And what we're looking for are patterns. As you know, that when the Hebrews, when they interpret prophecy, it's not so much prophecy and fulfillment, but it's a pattern. 
because they believe in an already but not yet fulfillment of prophecy. So they're looking for patterns that develop. And there are patterns that develop here in the book of Acts. And it doesn't matter what your opinion is on it. What we look for is what does Scripture say? Is that fair? Because this is a hot button topic. And you've got one group of the world, the church world, that just believes everything and it's just wild and crazy and a free-for-all. And you've got the other side of the world that says, no, 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 no. You only get the Holy Spirit when you're born again. That's all the Holy Spirit you get. You don't get this second blessing like they like to say, and there's nothing associated with it. You are wrong. So what should we do? Two opposing viewpoints. We should search the Scriptures to see if what either says is true. Do you guys realize this? This is going to be a mind blower. you ready for this? That when you have two opposing viewpoints, they both cannot be right. They both can be wrong. But they both cannot be right. So how do we figure it out? That means there is a solution to this. Acts chapter 2. You know this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Acts chapter 2. Because if you've been in any sort of spirit-filled church, you have had this bludgeoned upon you time and time again. And I say that not so much tongue-in-cheek because it's good. You see, this is the moment that Jesus told them to wait for. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly... There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what do we see here? This is the fulfillment, and we'll see, we see this later on. Again, this will make sense. We see the fulfillment of what Jesus said to do. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. We see the fulfillment of what John had said about Jesus. That he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, how did they receive this? Was there an altar call? Some preacher wasn't up there. Hey, everybody, bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand. And if you want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you come up here and I'll lay my hands on you and you will receive the Holy Spirit. No, we don't see that here. What we see is corporately together. They were there seeking the Lord. Did they know what was about to happen? Probably not. Okay? There's no indication of that. They're just there. And then this moment happened. And we know what takes place after this because Peter stands up and explains it all. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. That in the end times, at the end of days, when the Messiah has come... We are now in the reign of the Holy Spirit. And what do we see happen? They all spoke with other tongues. So we're now we're looking for patterns, right? We see that corporately they were together. Nobody laid hand on anybody else. The Spirit of God came upon them, and what did they do? They spoke with tongues. We'll get into what tongues is, not next week, but the week after, because it's important. A lot of misnomers out there about that. But for at least for now, we can see this. Jesus told them to wait. They waited. This happened. Okay? Now, let's jump to Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 4. I'm going to try to go through this quickly, but I want you guys to catch this. This is so crucial. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, stop. Scattered from what? If I were to give you all the context, they were scattered because of a guy that we know as Paul. At that moment, was known as Saul. And he had gone and gotten letters, and he was able to go and arrest any Christian that he wanted. Any follower of the way, and bring them back, and what was going to happen to them. They were either going to be jailed or executed. And if they were jailed, they were probably going to die there. And so because of this 
uh, power that he had and the persecution of the followers of the way, they were scattered everywhere. And what did they do? They scattered and they social distanced and they went into hiding. No. What's it say? They went everywhere preaching the word. Did it quiet them that their life was at stake? No, it emboldened them. Think about that. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, who's Philip? He was one of the twelve, right? He was there when the Holy Spirit came down, right? Maybe, we don't know. He's not one of the twelve. He's one of the seven deacons. When the apostles said, listen, we need some help here. We can't get all of this stuff done. Find seven men who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So this tells us something. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is not just for the people that Jesus said it to, right? That's who he said to wait. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So they listened to him. They listened to his words. I'll bet he was one who spoke as having authority. And they heard the miracles, which means they either heard audibly what happened, or they heard from somebody what happened, and they saw the miracles. It might be like, you know, hey, you remember that guy over there that couldn't walk his entire life? He's walking now. Philip did that, right? We don't know. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Man, wouldn't you think? They were tormented. And here's a man who has run for his life, and when he landed someplace, what's he do? He preaches the gospel, and he demonstrates it with signs following. Isn't that interesting? That's the same thing Mark 16 says. Philip must have read Mark's writings. Verse 9, there was a certain man called Simon who had previously practiced sorcery and in the city and he astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So now, who do they think had come from God? This man doing sorceries, whatever that looks like. We don't even know what he was doing. But they heeded him For the same reason they heeded Philip. He claimed to be something great. He demonstrated something great. That tells us something. There are false signs and wonders. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now this is powerful. Because Philip's preaching Christ and the man whom they thought was from God gives his life to Christ. Because of the words that Philip said and the demonstrations that he did. This is incredible. Now watch what happens next. Now... When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So how much time has passed? We don't know. What did they do? They sent Peter and John to them. Why did they send Peter and John? They're examining the words they're hearing. They had heard that the gospel had spread in Samaria. Remember how a Jewish man felt about Samaria. We know likey. You don't go there. So they send Peter and John to examine to see if what we're hearing is actually true. Because they probably had a hard time believing. 
Because you've got to understand something. We, we get this because we know what's happening. Is the gospel for everybody? Absolutely. In Peter's mind, was the gospel for the Gentiles? Not yet. He doesn't believe that yet. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 10. Does he think that the gospel is for Samaria? We don't know. But we know they don't like it. So they go in there and look. And when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now that's weird. Because I thought when we hear the gospel and we respond to it, we receive the Holy Spirit then. Do we not? Was Ezekiel confused? I don't think he was. But it wasn't Philip who laid his hands on them. It was Peter and John. When they showed up, they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. So they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. If it was one and the same, would that be necessary? Nope. Tells us something, doesn't it? We're not talking about the same thing. Now, why didn't Philip do that? I don't know. It doesn't say. But we can honestly say it is not the same thing. Is that fair? Okay. Now, did they pray in tongues? Does not say, does it? So if we're going to be objective, we have an example where they did in Acts 2. And we have an example where they did not in Acts chapter 8. We're just being objective. We're trying to examine the Scriptures to see what they say. Right? So whatever you, you have believed or you've heard your whole life, don't just, I mean, don't throw it out, but examine it. So we're looking at Scripture. So what we see is that the gospel was preached, as was mandated by Christ. Mandated by Christ to whom? His apostles, but that's not who did this. So that shows us that that mandate doesn't just stop there. It's for all people at all times. Then we also see that he demonstrated miracles. That tells us that he was baptized in the Holy Spirit because as the patterns lay out, Jesus didn't do miracles before the Holy Spirit came upon him. And we don't see anybody doing miracles before the Holy Spirit comes upon them in one way or another. And so here we're looking at this. We're like, okay, there's something to that. And then we see that the apostles come later. How much later? We don't know. They come later, and they see that the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them, so they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. How did they receive the Holy Spirit? Hands were laid on them. So we've got an example where corporately they received the Holy Spirit just by being there, praying, worshiping, whatever. And then we see the laying on of hands as a secondary event to the salvation experience. You all with me? Anybody confused yet? Are you taking notes? Try diagramming this one. Be fun, wouldn't it? Okay? Just being objective, let's move on. Acts chapter 9. Now we're going to deal with Paul. Mr. Paul, still called Saul. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters for him to be the synagogues of Damascus, that if he found anywhere of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is what I was talking about before. This was all the precursor, all prior to this, was leading up to this. They were being persecuted. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, well, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And he trembled and snarled and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he said, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now stop. Who is being persecuted? How? That's interesting. Was he capturing Jesus? No. Was he killing Jesus? No. None of this was going on. But Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Why is that? Because he is the head, and we are his body. 
That's interesting, isn't it? We don't think of ourselves like that, though. Do you think of yourself as the embodied Jesus on this earth right now? No, we do not. But that is what we are. Let's go on. Arise, go in the city, you'll be told what you must do. The men who journeyed with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. You'd stand speechless too. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight. He neither ate nor he drank. So he's fasting. You probably would too. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named, at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am. The Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. So he gives him the address. Inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. This would be fun, wouldn't it? If you were sitting there praying, the Lord says to you, here's what I want you to do. We'd all be excited about it. Look at his response. Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. In other words, you sure you got the right guy? You sure you called me? Like me? I know what this guy's capable of. And the Lord said to him, Go, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he rose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened, and Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, here's the thing. Ananias comes in. What's he do? He lays his hands on him. What happens? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the question. At the moment of salvation, we have seen that a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? What does it take to be saved? It's not a bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand thing. It is a belief in, do you think from the moment that man stood up, he didn't know who Jesus was? Oh, he knew. He knew exactly who he was. You see, I'm of the opinion that he was born again prior to this moment. Why do I say that? Again, it's belief in. You're going to see this here momentarily. It's belief in Jesus. The thief on the cross, what did he have to do? Nothing. Receive forgiveness of your sins, right? It's not, we've made a formula of it, but it's not a formula. But when Ananias came in, he put his hands upon him, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get hung up on the word filled, okay? I know what you're thinking. Don't get hung up, because again, that has multiple meetings, all right? But what happens here? We know, because we know who Saul was, later to be called Paul, and what he did. We see through the laying on of hands that he is baptized in the Holy Spirit. Did he speak in tongues? It doesn't say. But we know that he did because he says it later, right? It's a lot easier to dig through this when you write two-thirds of the New Testament. You can kind of examine it. I'm glad I speak in tongues more than all of you, right? We know that he did. But when the Holy Spirit came upon him, what happened? It was through the laying on of hands. Did he speak in tongues? It doesn't say that he did in this moment. We'll leave it 50-50, but we know that he did. So we lean that way, right? Okay? Let's go to Acts chapter 10. This is a profound moment for Peter. 
Acts chapter 10, verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his house, who gave alms generously to people and prayed to God always. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Now, he was a Gentile man, a leader of the army. He was a leader of hundreds and probably thousands. I mean, of, of this regiment and being called a centurion, century, get it? He was, a, he was a well-known guy. He was also a guy that had the authority and power to jail whomever he saw doing anything that they didn't want. Verse 4, and when he observed, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Send men to Joppa, send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So, all right, I'll be obedient, send my guys. Let's go on, verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened an object, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. And it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Now, look at his response. These are unclean animals in that a vision, a trance, is telling him to eat. And what is his response? What does Scripture say? He responded with that. Was he right to do so? Absolutely. But look what happens next. While Peter wondered within himself, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. Uh, verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now I'm going to stop here. This has nothing to do with dietary laws. Please do not use this verse to say that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law and now we eat shrimp and bacon. Thank you, Jesus. We eat shrimp and bacon for a different reason. But this is not the proof text. If you read Acts 11, he tells you exactly what this was. We're not going there today. Verse 17. I get really touchy about food, y'all. All right? Verse 17. While Peter wondered within himself what this vision he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now, the Holy Spirit told him, There are three guys looking for you. Go with them. Did he know why he's going with them? No, he just said go. Did he know that they were Gentiles in the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit telling that? No, he just said go. Then Peter went down to the men who had sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? They said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel, angel to summon you to his house and to hear from your words. And they invited them in and lodged them. Now, why did they start with that one who fears God and has a good reputation? To make sure that Peter knows that this isn't a setup. They don't know that the Holy Spirit told them to go. They have no idea. They're simply being obedient to what Cornelius has said. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him, so Peter didn't go alone. 
There's a group of them that went. The following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and they had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. What law is he referencing? The Mosaic Covenant. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. When did he show him that? In the vision. Is he going to eat the men? No, it has nothing to do with food. You guys get it? All right. Let's go on. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked him, for what reason have you sent for me? He still doesn't know. Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. No pressure, Peter. I was praying. God said to come. Preach to me. So Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now this is a revelation for Peter too. Because you understand, he struggled with the idea that the gospel was for the Gentiles. Remember, the nation of Israel was centered in all covenants. Something's changed. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were pressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. What's he showing him? The gospel. Where's that at, Callie? I'm just kidding. No pressure. 1 Corinthians 15. He's preaching the gospel. And what does he say? We were witnesses of everything. And we ate with him after he died. So they're either crazy or they're right. And he commanded, verse 42, us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that. Through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remissions of sin. What do you have to do? Believe in him. Whoever, any person, any creed, any tongue, doesn't matter. You believe in him, you receive the remissions of sin. And according to Ezekiel 36, what happens in that moment? The Holy Spirit comes inside of you. That's why I talk about Paul. Because there's no more doubting Jesus is who he says he is when he shows up to you. And a vision that says, why are you persecuting me? The doubt is gone. The belief is there. This is powerful. Who is he preaching to? A bunch of Gentiles. Watch what happened. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. 
And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Who was that? All the Jews that came with him. As many as came with Peter. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How did they know? They heard them speak with tongues and magnify, with, and magnify God. And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? That these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So what happened? While he's speaking, they believed. And the Holy Spirit fell upon Did Peter have an altar call? He did not. He lays hands on them. He did not. So the Spirit of God comes upon them corporately. And everybody that was there was shocked. You know what that means? They did not expect that. They were not prepared for what they're seeing. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them just like they were. When were they? Acts chapter 2. If you read the next chapter, we're not going to do that. As he's making his case in Jerusalem of what happened. He tells them the gift of the Holy Spirit had been given to them just like us. They're shocked by that. How did they know? Did they see tongues of fire above their head? No. They spoke in tongues and they magnified God. So now we see the belief, the Holy Spirit come upon them, not through the laying on of hands, but corporately. And how did they know? Because they heard them speaking in tongues. Let me show you one more. We're almost done. I promise. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, what is a disciple? Disciple's a follower of anybody, right? Now, when they're a disciple, and the way that Luke writes, if it's a disciple of somebody outside of a disciple of Christ, he references that. He calls them disciples of John, disciples of whomever. So we're looking at a pattern here. Finding some disciples, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said, and we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. That sounds like some of the churches we grew up in. And he said, and to what then were you baptized? He said, John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. What happened? He laid hands on them. We believe that they were already born again because they were disciples. They were followers. They didn't have it all together. They believed in the one that came after him. He laid hands on them. Holy Spirit comes upon them, and what do they do? They speak with tongues, and they prophesy. So now we're looking for patterns. So I put a chart together, okay? It's not the prettiest chart. I'm not very good at this kind of stuff. But you look at the different parts, and you look at what happens. How was the Holy Spirit given in each one? You got corporately in Acts 2, through the laying on of hands in Acts 8, Acts 9, and Acts 19, and corporately in Acts 10. So that tells us something, right? How does the Holy Spirit fall upon somebody? Either through the laying on of hands or corporately. There's really not a third option. Okay? What happened? What was the evidence? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we see they spoke with tongues, and that got everybody's attention. It doesn't tell us what tongues is. You notice that? It doesn't explain it. It just tells us that. In Acts chapter 8, with Simon the sorcerer, we don't know. 
if they spoke in tongues. They don't know anything. It doesn't say. Acts chapter 9, nothing was given in that moment, but we do know that Paul did. So you could make that argument. We don't need to. Acts chapter 10, they spoke in tongues, they magnified God. Acts chapter 19, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. So when we look at this together, we've got three out of five, more likely four out of five. All of this tying together. Isn't that interesting? What pattern has, de- has developed? The pattern is, is that in the moment of salvation, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's clear through the covenantal language that was put out. But then after that, and when we say after that, it doesn't have to be days, weeks, months. It could be moments. It's a secondary event because it is not the same thing. It has to be secondary. Is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, either through the laying on of hands or corporately, it appears that there is a sign given, and the main one being tongues. You guys see what Scripture says? What did we do? Throw out our preconceived notions and let's examine the Scriptures. I know everybody has different backgrounds and maybe maybe you have a different belief system. But the thing is, is that if your belief is not grounded in truth, it's nothing more than an opinion. And we got way too many opinions out there that are not grounded in facts. Acts chapter 11. I talked about this. Let me show it to you. 15. And as I began to speak, this this is Peter talking. The Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Which was reference to what? When did he fall upon them? Acts chapter 2. He's referencing the story of Cornelius with what happened to them in Acts chapter 2. Then I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John, indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What's he referencing there? What happened to them is what happened to us and what Jesus called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You see how we're making these connections? These are not arbitrary statements we're throwing out there. If, therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? What gift? The gift of the Father. Do you guys see this? What I want you to show, this is why I'm talking about we have been lied to, is that we have turned this into either nothing or we just don't even understand it. You see, this had a purpose. Would you agree that every... One of these has a purpose. Everyone does. These are not arbitrary. Everything that Jesus said and commanded has a purpose. He says, go and make disciples, teaching them all the things that I have commanded you. And that's one of them, folks. We don't do that. We don't do it for a plethora of reasons. Sometimes it's because, well, it's weird or we don't understand it. Or sometimes it's, it's over-preached, almost more important than salvation. There is nothing more important than salvation. But it has its purpose, and we're not done. I'm laying this foundation and setting this up because you've got to understand it. Because the next comes, is like, well, okay, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that even mean? What is the result of that? And these tongues we speak of, what are they? Because when we look at Acts 2, what was it? They heard them speaking the mighty works of God in their own language. So obviously, it is strictly of speaking a language of which you don't know. Right? In other words, if you're a missionary, that you can go into a land of a language you don't speak, and God will give you this gift of tongues and you can speak 
in the language and minister to them. That's the exclusive use of that, right? No. How do we know? We examine Scripture. It's so important we get this right. It's so important we get salvation right. What were we talking about? We've all created God in an image that we want. And the church has done that today too. But Jesus is who he says he is. You realize that when you say who is God, we know who he is of how he's revealed himself through his word. And when we say who am I in relationship to him, we know who we are in relationship to him as how he's revealed himself through his word. And you realize that when we ask the question, how do we worship God? We worship him in the way that he has revealed through his word. And when we look at who is my enemy, we look at that of how he's revealed it through his word. And any other metric that is used is strictly an opinion. We have to get back to the basics. Would you guys agree that everything that I am showing thus far is grounded in Scripture? Not my opinion. Scripture. I didn't always think like this. We have to get back to this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you are stirring us up. Just like them, Lord, we wanted They wanted the the baptism of the Holy Spirit because you told them to wait. And they may not have understood everything that they were waiting for, but they knew that you said it, and therefore they were going to do it. And so, Lord, that's us. I think you're stirring us up. That you can pour your Spirit out upon us. And that is for a purpose. To go into the world and preach the gospel with signs following. It's a purpose, Lord. And I thank you as we continue through this, that you will open our eyes to the truth of the Scripture. You'll soften our hearts to receive what you say. And that our minds are opened up to the reality of how you've expressed it. Lord, we give you glory. And we thank you for all the things that you continue to do in our hearts and our lives, Lord. That we will not just sit on the sidelines, Lord, but we will step up to what you've called us to do. To be obedient to all things that you've commanded. We give you glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.